How many of you uh, know what this picture is of? Anybody? In the back? Freedom Trail, exactly. We're coming into that season where hundreds of thousands of people are going to come into Boston. There's a two and a half mile journey along that red brick path that takes you through all the features in our ancient city about the revolution. So it's a pilgrimage of sorts, right? You walk that path. How many of you have, have walked that path, at least portions of it? Sure, lots of us. It's meaningful, it connects us to our history. Some of my favorite stops are the Paul Revere house. You can actually be in his backyard. You can be in his bedroom, for that matter. The Old North Church, where the mythology is bigger than the reality. The midnight ride of Paul Revere, one if by land, two if by sea. Amazing. It's an, it's an amazing pilgrimage for Americans. But for some of you, maybe that doesn't so connect your story as another path that has become known as the Underground Railroad. Maybe for you, your generation, that, or your story is more those that came up through a, more of a, a hidden path, but a pilgrimage nonetheless to liberty, uh, to the north and into Canada. Um, the National Park System actually has preserved a lot of the, what are referred to as the stations, the secret hiding places for people that have traveled and. And uh, I know folks that have, have gone on a bit of a pilgrimage through some of those uh, locations. I wonder if some of you have ever done that. Anybody here? Another pilgrimage that means a lot to Christians, which of course will take place this month uh, in, the, in the Holy Land by the millions of people, and that's the, the, the walk along what's referred to as the Via Dolorosa. How many know the, the term? It's called the Way of Suffering. This is actually a chiseled sign on an ancient wall in the old city in Jerusalem directing a pilgrim's attention along the path of the Way of Suffering, which is a track, and here's a map of it, uh, that uh, is traditionally thought of as the journey of Jesus as he carried the cross through the streets of Jerusalem on his way to the cross. These ancient paths that we walk connect us to more than history. They connect us to ancient and eternal truths. And that's exactly what the ascent to Jerusalem, that these Psalms that we've been studying for the Jewish people was about. It was a, it was a pilgrimage, a long obedience, as the book that we've been using, and we've encouraged some of you to read as we've been going through the study of these psalms, a long obedience in the same direction by Eugene Peterson. Uh, it was not just a long obedience because of the length of the journey, it was because of the history. That journey up to Jerusalem three times a year for the feasts and the festivals that every Jewish person was required to take was a journey through history. I can imagine them retelling to their children the stories just like we use the Christmas carols and the songs that go back centuries, some of them, to tell our children the great story of Jesus. I, I can imagine that these, these songs that were sung and known by the whole nation of Israel uh, were part of the storytelling of why we're heading up there and that we're going to be meeting God. Well, the 132nd Psalm 
is one that tells the story or at least celebrates the story of one of the most important events in the history of the Jewish people that really makes the whole pilgrimage possible. It's the story of the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant to its final resting place on the Holy Mountain, what would eventually be called the Temple Mountain in Jerusalem, Zion. Now, the psalm hardly alludes to it. It's only just like one of these vague allusions. And for us, coming back to it now, millennia later, we would have to really dig in to try to figure out what this psalm is about. But for those listening to it, it would be like you and I mentioning Abraham Lincoln or mentioning the Liberty Bell. And all of us would kind of know some of the stories around that if we've you know, been trained at all in our history. And then we could celebrate sort of the outcome or the recollection of that. Well, that's what this is. This, is, this story is so familiar to the Jewish people that the psalmist merely alludes to it and then remembers the joy of bringing that to the ark and then cherishes it. It's part of preparing themselves to go to meet God where that ark was, you see. And so that's what this psalm is. It's the 132nd psalm. We're going to read it together. It's 442, page 442 in the Pew Bibles. I'd like you to turn there so that we can read it. This is the longest of the Psalms of Ascent. It's twice as long as any other. I promise you this sermon will not be. But the Psalm is twice as long. It's many times older than the other Psalms in this mini collection within the book of Psalms. Um, It may be one of the oldest Psalms in the whole Bible. It was quoted by King Solomon at the, de- at the dedication of the temple. In fact, some biblical scholars believe that it was written specifically for that dedication ceremony, and so now it had become part of the celebration songs of the Psalms of Ascent as they went up to that temple, which, which makes it quite fascinating. So let's read it. You follow along as I read out loud verse 1. Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord. He made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in Ephratah. We came upon it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord also swore an oath to David. A sure oath he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion, that's Jerusalem. He has desired it for his dwelling, saying, 
This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow from David and set up a lamp from my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but his head will be adorned with radiant crowns. Now, in order to really understand this psalm, you need to get that story. You need to know that story that the Jewish people knew about the Ark of the Covenant. So I'm going to use a fair amount of time this morning, of my allotted time, telling you that story. So this is a, a representation of the Ark. It's an artist's rendition. I think it's reasonably accurate. The Ark was four and a half foot long, two and a half foot high and deep. It was a wooden box clad in gold. On top of it was a solid gold top that was known as the mercy seat. That name is very important. And on the mercy seat were two cherubim. I tend to think this picture makes those cherubim look awfully pretty and very humanistic. And while we know that there were angels who appeared to be like men, and like women, the cherubim were anything but that, according to biblical scripture. They were pretty fearsome. They were the warrior class of the angelic beings. Let's call them the black ops of the angelic forces. They were pretty terrifying. They're described at one time as having human faces, other times having beasts' faces. They were fierce. They were a fierce bunch. So I tend to think that the cherubim were a little less beautiful from our aesthetic standards, a little more fear, fearful. It was the cherubim who, who were assigned to guard the entrance to the garden so people couldn't go back, you see. So that, that was the group. And the reason why they guarded that seat, that mercy seat, was because that was the place where God would set himself, at least a, a representation of his presence, you may know the story of um, the pillar of smoke and fire that led the ancient people of Israel through the promised land. The, the fancy word for that is the Shekinah glory, and it means the physical representation of the presence of God. You may know that that Shekinah glory led them around the promised land. But what you may not know is that when the tabernacle was set up, God's tent among the tents of the people. The Ark of the Covenant was placed in the inner sanctum of God's tent or tabernacle known as the Holy of Holies. It's a very sacred place, but that Shekinah glory would come and rest on the mercy seat and above it so that people, all of Israel could see and know that God was in residence. It was from the mercy seat that God would speak to Moses. Pretty amazing. The mercy seat in the Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by a veil. And you know what was on the veil? Cherubim. <laughs> in other words, we don't go in here lightly. Now inside the ark were three artifacts. The first artifact were the two stone tablets on which God's finger wrote 
the law. And the law was how God told his people how he wanted them to live and also how he wanted to be worshipped. Did you know that God has specific ideas for how we should worship him? Did you know that? It's worth knowing that, don't you think? If you come for worship and are just saying, well, I'm looking for something from worship, then you, you actually have a problem because you're the object of your worship. You're looking to get. And we get from worship for sure, but God needs to receive from our worship. Well, he was very clear with the nation of Israel about that type of worship, and it was on those tablets. The second thing that was in the ark was the rod of Aaron. At this point in history, it would have been called the rod of Aaron that budded, which we'll talk about in a moment. But it's likely the very same rod that Aaron had with him in Egypt during the exploits of the Exodus. Ignore everything you think you know about the Exodus by having watched Charlton Heston in that ancient movie during the golden era of Hollywood, The Ten Commandments. He did not, it wasn't his rod that God used. It was Aaron's rod that God used. Moses was God's voice, but Aaron really did all the speaking, and it was his rod that was thrown down in Pharaoh's court, turned into a snake, ate the rods and the snakes of the, uh, of the, uh, of the priests of, of their idols. It was that rod that turned the river into blood. It was that rod that was extended over the Dead Sea that opened it, that gave them liberty. So that rod represented a lot in terms of God's powerful deliverance to the, to the people of Israel. But it was also a rod that budded at, at a very interesting event. You see, there was a point in the wilderness where some of the other leaders decided they didn't really like that Moses and Aaron were leading. They thought, I could lead. Who put them in charge? You know, and I'll be the first to tell you, Moses and Aaron didn't exactly earn it. You know, they, they made some pretty serious mistakes. There was cause to criticize. That's probably true here. If you're looking for it, you'll find plenty of cause to criticize the leadership here, too. None of us are perfect. But God had appointed them. But these people said, well, how do we know that? Why can't we lead? And so one of the things in that whole season was that Moses said, okay, let's, let's just see. Why don't you pick a rod from the leader of each of your tribes, their rod, and let's put them in the tabernacle in front of the veil, in front of the, whole, uh, the, the, the ark, and let's see what happens. And the morning they came back, all the other rods were still dead wood, just like the people that held them. <laughs> Aaron's rod bloomed. More than that, it bore fruit. It bore almonds. It's amazing. I, I would have preferred cashews, but almonds will work. <laughs> almonds will work. That's an amazing story. And so there's two things about the rod. First of all, it's a, it's, a, it's a representation of God's fantastic, powerful deliverance, but it's also a reminder that we'll come back to in a few moments that God was saying, hey, I choose my high priest. I choose. Not by your standards, by my purposes. That will matter in a few moments in our understanding. So this is what the ark represented as a teaching object lesson to the children of Israel. The ark itself reminded them God was with us. Amazing. 
God was present among his people. But more than that, even though he was present, it also reminded them of the otherness, the holiness of God. His presence was to be cherished, but not taken lightly. The tablets reminded them that God had made it pretty clear that he wanted them to live a certain way for his glory. The rod was a reminder of God's supernatural deliverance for his people and and an object of hope that he would continue to do that. The manna was a reminder of God's miraculous provision for his people. Oh, by the way, that was the third object in the ark, was a jar of manna. You may know the story of the manna in the wilderness where nothing grew, God miraculously provided this heavenly substance that had all the nutrients that were necessary. Uh, By the way, the Hebrew word for manna, you know what it means? What is it? That's what it means, what is it? Imagine the first time they kind of went, what, manna? Not bad. They could only collect for one day, one day's worth of manna, they couldn't save it up except the day before the Sabbath. If they tried to save it up by morning, it would be full of maggots. God was saying to them, look, I I don't want you to trust the provision. I want you to trust me as the provider. And by the way, that's why Jesus taught his disciples to ask the Lord, give us today our daily bread. It's rooted in the story of the manna. The manna reminded the children of Israel that God miraculously provides for his children. And then there was a final element in the ark. Not in the ark, but on it. And certainly part of the ark. And that was the blood. I imagine that there were generations of sprinklings of blood on that mercy seat. And the reason why I imagine that is because the high priest only went into the presence of the ark once a year. And he did not bring Windex. He brought more blood. And he sprinkled that blood as a, as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people so that the relationship with the Holy God was maintained with him. Uh, yeah, I don't think there were, there, were Monday, there were Monday morning cleaners that came into the Holy of Holies. I think the blood was a sacred part of the symbolism there because what the blood said to the children of Israel is, God can forgive your sins. Atonement is possible. You can be cleansed. That's what the ark was. Let me tell you the story a little bit. The ark was made under Moses' leadership uh, as God had prescribed it to be made. And it was that ark that was carried in front of the people of Israel as they traveled through the promised land. It led them with the Shekinah glory above it in their 40 years of wandering, the ark led the people of God as the high priests carrying it put their feet in the river Jordan at flood season and the river miraculously opened and they finally stepped in victoriously into the promised land. It was the ark that led the army of Joshua as they encircled over many days the city of Jericho and were gifted by God a powerful victory over that city. And then ultimately victory over the whole land that God had given them. It was that ark that had carried them through all of that season. 
And then into the era of the judges. When Israel was in the promised land, and we have centuries of this cycle that Israel would go through, of losing interest in the things of God, and basically forgetting about the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and the worship of God and falling into disobedience and losing God's blessing on them so that their enemies came back into the land and took possession and, and enslaved them and took their being. And then all of a sudden they'd say, oh yeah, God. <laughs> and they'd get their act back together. And one of the great judges that God gave them would give them victory and they'd have spiritual revival and remember the worship of God. This cycle happened over and over again for centuries. Eventually in that time, the ark and the tabernacle found themselves in a little town called Shiloh. And the story of the ark really picks up momentum when in Shiloh we come to a young boy named Samuel who was being mentored by the high priest Eli in his day. And this is where the story of the ark gets really fun, fun. Yeah, I guess fun's the right word. Kind of tragic and fun. What happened was the Philistines were coming back into battle and the Israelites were losing the battles. And so they, they got this idea. They went, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Didn't our great, 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 great grandparents carry the ark when they went into battle? Let's do that. So Eli's sons go and they get the ark and they carry it into battle. But here's the problem. They're living in disobedience. The ark was never the point. The presence of God was the point. The ark was just the symbol of it. And this is what often happens to us with the symbols of our spiritual journey. For many of us, it's even for us today, it's our cross. They become superstitious objects that we think themselves, they have some power and some strength. Well, the ark didn't have strength in itself. God was not with them. So not only did they lose the battle, they lost the ark. The Philistines take it into their possession. Eli hears the news of his sons being killed in the battle, and he's sad. But when he hears that the ark has been lost to the children of Israel, he dies. The wife of one of the sons who had been killed in battle of Eli is so heartbroken, she immediately goes into labor, dies in childbirth, but names the child Ichabod, which means your glory has departed. Because the ark of God was gone from Israel. The glory of God was gone. This is sad. This was tragic. The nation of Israel could not protect the ark. But here's the great part about it. God could. And so God steps in. And what happens in the land of the Philistines is really remarkable. Everywhere the ark goes, it's followed by misery and suffering. At one point, they bring it into the temple of Dagon, one of their gods. They think that's a great place to put religious objects. So they leave, the morning they come back and the, the idol of Dagon has been supernaturally moved and it's prostrate before the ark, bowing before the ark of God. So they put it back. Next day they come back, not only is it prostrate again before God, but its head and its hands have been broken off. Bad omen. 
So they start shuffling the ark around. And everywhere it goes, people are saying, I don't want the ark. I don't want the ark. You take the ark. I don't want the ark. Because everywhere they went, there were plagues of mice. And think of all the sickness that happened with that. And also, everywhere they went, people suffered from giant tumors. Now, this is funny. I think this is God's sense of humor. You know what the Hebrew word for tumors can also mean? Hemorrhoids. It's true. So imagine if that's how God chose to judge these people. You're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you my judgment. I'm going to give you giant tumors. I love that thought. So seven months, they'd had enough. They don't know what to do with it. So they put it on a cart, throw some gold that they've kind of fashioned uh, to match the plagues, including the hemorrhoids. <laughs> Somehow, gold hemorrhoids uh, on the cart. They put two cows in front of the cart. They smack the back of the cow and say, get out of here. And God miraculously directs the cart back to the land of Israel. And that's where this psalm picks up the story. That's what this verse, verse 6, is speaking of. The field, go ahead and bring it up. The field where the cart had come to rest with the ark. Let's say it together. We heard it in Ephrata. We came upon it in the fields of Jaar. See, that was where it sat. And it was there for 20 years under King Saul. Was largely forgotten, as was the tabernacle, as was the worship of God, really, under Saul, until King David came to power. And God moved his heart to seek after the ark. He had heard where the ark was. And it happened that where the ark was, God was blessing the people that were caring for it. He thought, we need that for the whole nation. And so you will find the story of how David brings the ark back in 1 Samuel chapter 6 and 7. You'll find the story of the Philistines and the ark in 1 Samuel chapter 5 and 6. That's worth reading. That, that'll be some fun reading before bed. You go ahead and read that. And then in, in the 6th chapter, and then also in 1 Chronicles 16 and 17, we see, first of all, David tries it, but he doesn't read the instructions. <laughs> Typical man at Christmas. You know, I don't need the instructions, that whole thing. How many of you have stories of your dad just kind of butchering some kind of a toy that he said, I don't need the directions? Well, it's so, he does it wrong, and somebody actually dies. And so it sits there, it stays where it is for a long time. There was some victories that God wrought. Uh, and then David says, okay, I'm going to read the instructions. And so then he does it right. And this psalm is remembering that great procession according to the laws to how to move at that great celebration as the ark was brought from Ephrata and that region along the paths up the holy mountain and where it found its resting place on the temple, what would be known as the temple mountain where it was at the time of these pilgrims that we're looking at today. That's what's being remembered by this psalm. And so with that, we can just quickly understand the meaning of it. In the first half of the psalm, you see the account being remembered of David swearing an oath 
And essentially, here's his oath. I'm not going to sleep in my bed, in my house, until I bring God, as symbolized by the ark, to his house and to his bed. This is the only place we see the account of a vow like that. Uh, the, the, the actual historical narrative doesn't speak of it this way. But it was a vow and a promise. And then we move forward to this great season of celebration. And so these phrases that are quoted in verses 8 and 9 may have been as familiar to the Jewish people as our saying, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They were these sort of familiar phrases. They are remembering the joy of the people as the ark was brought to Jerusalem. In fact, let's try to capture that by saying this passage with that same sense of joy that they had that day. Are you with me? Okay, all three of us. Let's do it. Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness. May your faithful people sing for joy. That's what they're remembering, and, and I'm picturing them retelling the story because it's why they're on pilgrimage. That's where we're going. We're going to where the ark is, where God is. We're going to the house of God. And we're going with joy. You see, it's, it's really powerful that way. Now, in the back half of the psalm, we see God's oath to David, which actually is in Scripture. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 7. After David brings the ark back, God makes an oath or a vow to David. When God makes vows, we call them covenants because it sounds more God-like, a little more formal. And in this vow, there is both sort of an immediate conditional aspect. And that's where he says to, uh, to David, uh, uh, one of your own, verse 11, one of your own descendants I will place on your throne if your sons keep my covenant and the statues I teach them. Then their sons will sit on the throne forever and ever. So the promise there is, David, if your descendants are faithful to me like you are, and remember the tablets and the way I've called you to live and to worship, if they are that, then I will bless their reign. Now, we know historically, sadly, most of them didn't follow that path. And it got Israel and the reign, the throne of David in trouble for a long time. But then there is a longer view of God's vow to David, the Davidic covenant, we call it, to make it sound really fancy. And it's messianic in nature. That means it has to do with the Messiah, the promised Savior of the Jewish people. And this part of it, God said, I'm going to do just because I desire it. It's my plan for it. And that's what this section describes. One of your descendants I will place on your throne. He's talking about Jesus, the Messiah. The Lord has chosen this city as his dwelling forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned. I will set a lamp for my anointed one. This is all referring to the coming of the Lord. And this is the thing I, I want to say to you. The ark as the whole tabernacle. Go back, Michael, go back to that slide about what the ark represents. Because not only the ark, but the whole tabernacle served as an object lesson, a prophetic 
metaphor for God's ultimate plan to redeem not just Israel, to be in relationship with not just the Jewish people, but with a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that you and I are part of today because it all pointed to Jesus. He was the true ark of God when he took on human form and walked among us and in relationship with us. He reminded us of God's desire for how we should live when he summarized what was on those tablets, the whole law, when he said the whole thing is summed up by these two statements. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor. He reminded us of how God had called us to live and called us to it. He was the very rod of God bringing about supernatural deliverance to people in their illness and in their ignorance and in their sin and even in their dying, giving victory over all of those things. And he himself was the very bread of God. I am the bread of life. Those who partake in me shall never die. And it was his blood that countless lambs had pointed to that were a mere symbol of the shedding of which brought atonement and forgiveness for us. See it? Their journey is our journey. And so the reason their pilgrimage or or ascent was a long obedience wasn't just because it was a long journey. (laughs) It's because it was a lifetime of obedience over and over again. Faithful journeying towards the city of God. It was a long obedience because it was rooted in many generations that had gone before them. They walked on ancient paths that Hundreds of generations had trod before them. You have to remember that about your journey. You know, we have so individualized the idea of religion and faith that we forget that God is about a people, not just about a person. The only person God's ultimately about is his son, Jesus Christ. He cares for you. He loves you. But he's made you part of something fantastic. It's the people of God. And the same same path that you're on right now is not new and clever and modern. It's ancient and eternal. And it's the one that matters most. That path that they were on was a long obedience and ancient because it was the very path, think about this, that the ark itself had traveled on its way to that very resting place. They were walking over those roads, you see. Our pilgrimage is so similar to that. The writer of Hebrews captures it in chapter 12, verse 1. Let's say this as we wrap up together. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Three things in this kind of capture the similarity of your and my pilgrimage with the pilgrimage of the ancient people of God. The first phrase is, a great cloud of witnesses. 
The writer is referring to the previous chapter where he goes into great detail all the way back throughout all of human existence, pointing to people who by faith have lived that long journey of obedience with God and have found favor and righteousness because of their faith. And he's reminding us that we are just one leg of that journey that the people of God are taking. You do not travel alone. Not only do you travel in the community of the saints together and how desperately we need each other for this journey. You travel with generations that have trod this long, tested, and tried path of faith. And they are witnesses today of our journey. The second phrase is, let us run with perseverance. That's just the, that's just the paraphrase of a long obedience. We're in it for the long haul. And our destination is nothing short of the eternal city of God. What's the last phrase we focus on? Yeah, eyes on Jesus. You see, Israel looked to the ark to inspire them and to motivate them on their journey, but the ark was merely a, a signpost, a foreshadowing. We don't look to an object. We look to Jesus. And the cross as objects go. And we remember that, as the writer says, Jesus is the author, the founder and perfecter of our journey. And he walked it before we did to make it possible for us to walk this faith. He, he took the cross and he walked that path of sorrow, that via dolorosa, and having taken away the sting of death and sin and the sorrow of the journey, he turns to us as he turned to his disciples and he says, follow, follow me. It's a long obedience, it's for a lifetime and it's in one direction, to the eternal dwelling place of God. Let's walk that journey together.